Are any of you into that whole study your genealogy thing? Yeah? Or you have somebody in your family that's done it? They kind of searched out where your parents and grandparents and kind of great-grandparents are from? It's pretty popular these days. Uh, there are all sorts of websites like Ancestry.com, and you kind of find out kind of where your tribe or clan used to live and kind of what they've been up to. Some folks can trace their family trees back generations and generations and generations. I have a, my mom's cousin did this, and on my mom's side, we can trace our family back to the 16th century, the 1500s, into kind of Trent, the area of Trent, England. Uh, my dad, on my dad's side, and as a lot of you know, I'm an Appalachian American, uh, we can go back as far as his great-grandmom because that's as far as anybody can remember, and then after that, we don't really know where we came from. He's either that side of the hill or the other side of the hill. We're not exactly sure, but somewhere up in the holler, the Waddells used to live. So all of this, of course, has taken on a new level of kind of scientific um, specificity uh, with the development of DNA, or not the development of DNA, but the, the, our fact to measure DNA. I guess the DNA itself has always been around. But not only can we measure it, but you can measure it now even very personalized, uh, for like a hundred bucks, you can kind of send away a bit of your saliva, and they'll tell you all sorts of things about you. Uh, has anybody done that? They've kind of checked their DNA? Yeah, right, several of you. Pretty, pretty interesting stuff. So A.J. Jacobs, he's a popular writer, and uh, he recently published this book just a few weeks ago called It's All Relative, Adventures Up and Down uh, the Family Tree. What's interesting about this is uh, Jacobs is very autobiographical the way he writes. You might recognize him from the year of living biblically. He kind of took a 12-month time in his life, and he tried to live kind of word by word by what the Bible says, which is very difficult. It includes killing a lot of animals, includes going up on your roof sometimes, and wearing certain types of clothing. But he kind of did that and then wrote about it. And so he had his own DNA tested, and so he started to travel to see if he could meet some of his extended family. And he uh, had all sorts of types of experiences. So he found out that part of his family were some of the originators of the Mormon church. So he made his way out to Utah. He ended up getting to sing with the Mormon uh, Tabernacle Choir, which I think would have been a pretty interesting experience. And uh, he found out a few other things. One of the things that he discovered was that sometimes when people have animosity or enmity towards someone else, if they find out that that other person is closely related to them or even distantly related to them, they seem to lighten up a bit. So on, on a very kind of personal, very anecdotal note, he kind of said that he had a lot of disdain for Judge Judy. Uh, you know who this is? She's a television personality. She's an actual judge as far as I know. But, but Jacobs is like, was always like, oh, man, I kind of hate that lady. That, that's a stupid show. And then he found out that she was like his eighth cousin. And then he's thinking, you know, Judy, she's not so bad. She's all right. So sometimes, you know, we have uh, the potential to take it easy on the folks that we think are part of our group, maybe more so than we would have if we could just identify them solely as the other. So the Apostle Paul writes about this in a couple of different places. He writes it to the Galatians. He writes it as well to the Colossians. He'll say something on the order that in Christ we are neither Jew nor Greek, those different kind of ethnic groups. We're neither slave nor free, those type of socioeconomic groups. Uh, we're neither male nor female. 
kind of even gender categories, you say, kind of fade away as we come into Christ, that we're, we're all part of the kingdom of God. We're all part of the body of Christ. We are all part of the family of God. Now, what that means, I think, is not that to be a Christian that you have to be an ageless, sexless, genderless, um, kind of androgynous person, but rather that in the kingdom of God, that we are completely kind of affirming and accepting of, of all these different groups who otherwise we might have marginalized in our systems, in our societies. Uh, of course, we believe this kind of based on the biblical account that we are all actually related, that all of humanity kind of descends, right, from a common source. But interestingly enough, as Jacobs uh, points out in his book, this is the same thing that science is suggesting to us that there is kind of this kind of um, original X chromosome and Y chromosome from which we all seem to somehow have descended. Now, what's interesting about the family tree is that it has had some times of serious pruning, uh, whether it was a, a kind of wars or natural disasters or pandemics. So if you trace your roots back into Europe, it's not as though we have to go back tens of thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years to find our kind of common source because the Black Plague kind of so deplenished the population that, that everyone can kind of follow back to just a few, few families. And a very sad note, uh, if, if you're uh, of Jewish uh, ethnicity or descent and the, your family doesn't trace kind of back through the Middle East or through Africa or South America or somewhere, if it traces back through Europe, if, if you are somewhat Jewish and your family comes from Europe, then you are only like six or seven places removed from any other Jewish person who is also European. That's remarkable because the Holocaust was so effective in kind of wiping out uh, such a significant portion of that people group. So I, I bring this up today uh, on the third Sunday of Advent. Uh, we're continuing our series, Simply Christian or excuse me, Simply Christmas. And what we mean by Simply Christmas is we, we want to have a bit of a conspiracy, right? We want to celebrate Advent that's not been quite so commercialized. We want to kind of come into the Christmas season that we are approaching and actually celebrate the Christ and what the Christ means and the liberation that comes with the Christ and the inclusion that comes with the Christ. Because as, as we say, there's lots of ways that we might categorize ourselves or others and to kind of uh, split them up into different groups that then we can then relate to them in particular ways. Either we're going to like them or dislike them, we're going to kind of welcome them, or we're going to kind of keep them at a distance. Uh, race is an interesting one, right? So if I were to fill out a, a survey or apply for uh, a position and it was asking demographic information, right? So name... Robbie, Waddell, you know, address, you know, Darlington Circle, you know, Lakeland. And then it asks other things, you know, like your age range, kind of where you fit in, and I'll ask like race. So when it hits me and it asks race, I normally tick the box that says white. But what, what's interesting about that is, is that on the planet Earth, uh, 200, 300 years ago and before, there wasn't a single person on the planet that would have self-identified as being white. Like, not one. Right? So, so people might have been Welsh or English or Scottish or Irish or Danish or French or German or Italian or Norwegian or Swedish or Swiss. 
Uh, but they identified with where they were from, the language that they spoke, the food that they ate, the songs that they listened to, so that we are embodied people in actual geographical places, and that's kind of who we were. It wasn't until part of Western Europe tried to colonize the rest of the planet and kind of own it that you started to get a people group that are no longer kind of uh, attached to where they were from or the language that they spoke or the food that they ate or the songs that they sung or the religion that they practiced because now they're kind of migrants. And we had this huge kind of migrant group, particularly moving into, say, North America, for example. And forget the fact that there were already lots of people who already lived here, right? There were people who, who, ha- who kind of lived on the land and loved the land and lots of different groups. But those people, they, they seemed to, on the one hand, the pigment of the skin wasn't as light. And on the other hand, uh, if they were legitimate people, then how could we come in and kind of conquer it and, and own it? So the very kind of concept of personal property, that this is property that I own, is, re- is distinctly related to the kind of racial identity that has evolved over the last few hundred years. You know, because I could say this is my property, right? That little, you know, whatever it is, quarter of acre, uh, they're in North Lakeland, right? And there's a, there's a couple of those live oak trees. Do you know the, the, know the similar ones? They're very common in our area. They're the huge, thick ones, and they have all the Spanish moss in them. I have a few, but one of them's gigantic. It's got to be 60, 70 years old, uh, maybe more. What's interesting about that tree is it's in pretty good health, and as it continues to grow, not only has it been around longer than I've been around, it will be around longer than I'm around. So for me to refer to that tree as my tree is a little presumptuous, isn't it? I mean, it existed before me, it'll exist after me, so what makes it my tree? I guess it's my tree because it's on my property. Except I've only owned that property for about five years. I mean, who owned that property 10 years ago? Or 20, or 50, or 100, or 1,000, or 10,000, right? So the idea behind this idea that it's all relative speaks to this reality that we are all part of the same family and that our family is kind of growing and expanding and that in the Jewish world, this is interesting. Uh, You may or may not know this. You need to read um, Exodus and Leviticus. In the Jewish world, you couldn't sell property. You could lease property, but eventually it had to, at some point in time, it had to come back to the original family because property wasn't something that could kind of be given away. Like, We were of the people where we're from. So in Genesis chapter 2, when it talks about the creation of humanity, it's interesting. The Adam, right, the original human, is made out of the dust, out of the Adamah. That's the Hebrew word, right? The Hebrew word for person is Adam. The Hebrew word for earth or dirt or land is Adamah. So you can hear the kind of close cognate between the two. The Adam comes from the Adamah. The person comes from the earth. And we will say this at a certain part in the liturgical calendar. On Ash Wednesday, we put a cross on your head made out of ashes, and we say, from ashes you have come, and from ashes you shall return. And we say it at funerals as well, don't we? From dust to dust and ashes to ashes. That the lives that we have are kind of temporary, and we kind of realize that, that we only exist in any kind of extended way, only by the very grace of God. And it is the coming of God that gives life. And it is the coming of God that sustains life. And it's the coming of God that makes the wrongs right. So in the lectionary, 
Uh, one of the passages of Scripture associated with this Sunday and this liturgical year is Isaiah chapter 61. I find it very fascinating and really quite exciting. Well, it's a longer passage. We'll just, look, we'll just start here with the first three verses of Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the Lord's uh, or the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. We'll pause there just for a minute and we'll, we'll pick up on the rest of the, of the, of the verse in just a second. Isaiah 61, though, it's full of this expectation. It's kind of full of hope. The previous uh, passages in this year's lectionary have all, have all been just a little tentative, right? Just holding off just a bit, not, not quite full in. But this, this is just kind of blazing open kind of hope and joy and expectation that Advent is coming, that the Messiah will be here, that the wrongs will be made right, that there'll be a reversal of, of fortune. As many of you know, I'm sure Jesus reads from this passage in Nazareth. Uh, he had been traveling already, and his reputation as a rabbi was growing, and he goes to his hometown, and it was the Sabbath, and as it says, as was his custom on the Sabbath, he went to synagogue. So he goes in, and they give him the scroll of Isaiah to read, they had very much a lectionary like Christians do today. There's a particular verse for the day. And this was that verse. It's as though Jesus sewed up at the synagogue the same day I've thrown up here at Oasis. And so he's opened the scroll and he reads this passage of Scripture. The Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me. And I have been anointed. Right? And what's going to happen? It's good news for the oppressed. It's binding up of the brokenhearted. It's liberty for the captives and release to the prisoners. Jesus read this verse, and it says, They all spoke well of him and wondered at his gracious words. Man, that's good. Jesus sits down, and he says, uh, Sitting down doesn't mean he was done, right? They, they, uh, they would stand up to read, and they would sit down to teach. So all of our eyes are on them. We're going to say, okay, what is this rabbi going to have to say about this passage with all this kind of expectancy and hope that good news is coming, right? I'm going to proclaim the good news to the oppressed. What does that mean? Um, they've all spoken well of him. They've wondered at his gracious words. They've said, hey, isn't this Joseph's son? I think that guy built me a table. Right? This is, this is great news. And Jesus says, today, this passage is fulfilled. So when a rabbi reads a messianic text and says, ta-da! <laughs> what he's saying is, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the one who, who you've been expecting. I'm the one who's going to proclaim the good news to the oppressed. Release to the captives, liberty to those who are indebted, release to those who are in prison. And they're all excited. They're like, this is good news. 
And then Jesus kind of throws a bit of a curveball. Something we wouldn't have expected, perhaps. Something they're apparently not expecting because they're all like, yeah, Jesus, Jesus. And he says, look, uh, no prophet is accepted in their own hometown. And they're like, hmm, wonder why he said that. And then he goes on to give two illustrations about what he thinks it means for the Messiah to come. And these are the two illustrations he gives. The first one is of um, Elijah, the kind of powerful prophet of old, and how he prophesied that there was going to be a famine, and how he went to this widow's house and how she and her son are provided for. You familiar with that one? Yeah? The widow from Zarephath? And then he goes, he goes into another story. Elijah's protege, the next great prophet, uh, and how there were, there were many people who were kind of plagued in, in Galilee at that time with leprosy. And they tell the story about how Naaman was healed of his leprosy. And then when, he, when he's done, they're like, we're going to kill this guy. Let's, let's just get him. Come on, everybody. If we grab him right now, we can throw him off the cliff and kill him. So here's my question. How did they go from, woohoo, hometown boy is going to be our deliverer to, I'm going to kill you? So, I mean, I just retold the story of Elijah going to the widow of Zarephath and of Naaman being healed. But none of you got angry, did you? No, no, everybody's good, right? No one got up and walked out. No one frowned. No one seemed to get upset in any way. So that story must somehow be a bit more of a trigger <laughs> for first century Jews than it is for us, yeah? So what's being said? Well, Zarephath, the town the widow is from, is, is north of Galilee. It's in what would be present-day Lebanon which suggests that she's not Jewish, that she's a Gentile. And there would have been a lot of Jewish widows who would have needed support during the time of the famine. But Elijah didn't go to any of them. He went up to Zarephath to that widow's house. And so some people might have thought, well, you know, when God's going to deliver, he's going to deliver us, not them. We are the oppressed, right? Oppressed by the Egyptians, oppressed by the Canaanites, oppressed by the Edomites and Ammonites and Syrians and Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and Romans. I mean, we are one oppressed group of people. And if God's going to deliver, God's going to deliver us. So I'm sure when he, if all the stories that Jesus could have chosen, right, to kind of go back and retell, that was not the one that was going to kind of endear the congregation to him. But that, that, that would have kind of ruffled a few feathers. But people are probably sticking through it, right? They're sticking with him. Let's see what else this rabbi has to say. And lo and behold, he tells the story of Naaman being healed of leprosy. Now, there would have been a lot of people with leprosy living in Galilee, who would have been blessed to have been healed. 
But Naaman is the general of the Syrian army. He owns Jews as slaves. In fact, it's one of his Jewish slave girls who tells him, there's a man of God who lives down in Dothan. You should go see him. That's in Galilee. Like, you, we can, uh, you can go down there and he'll pray for you. And as the story goes, he goes to see this, this Gentile, this Syrian general, goes to see the man of God, the prophet of God, and, and, and Elisha says, all you have to do is go down the Jordan and dip yourself seven times and you'll be healed. And he's like, I'm out of here. You crazy Jewish people. Dipping in that dirty Jewish river. You know, and, and his, his, his slave says, now uh, hold up a minute, uh, General Naaman. Had, had, had he, he said, go conquer, you know, Turkey or, or Cyprus, you'd have thought, oh yeah, I'm strong, I'm powerful, I can go do that, I can earn my healing. But he's just telling you to go dip in the water seven times. You know, suck it up, buttercup. Let's see, let's see if you can just be a little obedient. I, I paraphrased a little bit of that. So, so he goes down and he dips in the water seven times. And as he comes up the seventh time, the guy's clean. He's healed. Now, let me, let me reframe this in our context so you can get the sense of why people would want to kill somebody who would say such a thing. So uh, the more nationalistic you are and you kind of identify with your nation as your kind of people group, right? So you realize, and especially in the ancient world where your nation wasn't multicultural most likely, right? Your nation was of, of a particular ethnicity, nationality, uh, language, uh, skin color, uh, music, food, religion, right? They, when you think that there are lots of gods and you serve the god of your you know, your country, your area, yeah? And so here are the Jews, and that's kind of what they're believing, yeah? So, so let's imagine that it's the 4th of July, or maybe Veterans Day. And, and uh, a kid from our church who's gone away to seminary, we'll call him Thomas, and imagine that he went far, far away to the land of North Carolina, to the school of Wake Forest. And he comes home to preach his first sermon. And we're like, man, we are glad to see him home. That's our boy, man, up there at Wake Forest studying divinity. We're so proud of him. And he decides to preach a sermon about how Jesus died on the cross for Osama bin Laden Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, and ISIS. Now, we love Tommy. He's sitting right over here. But, but we're not going to have Tommy preach again. Now, we're probably not going to try and kill him. But we're not going to take him to lunch. Who do you think you are? Do you not know who we are? Do you, know, do you not know what we've been through? Do you not know the sacrifices that we've made? Do you not know the problems that we've had? How dare you speak of God as the God of our enemies? That's why they wanted to kill Jesus. Because his level of inclusion went far up and beyond what they could have possibly imagined or in any way been comfortable about. 
You see, Jesus died. You knew that part of the story. But the Romans killed Jesus. The Jews wanted him dead. On neither account in order to save our sins or because God loved us. It's not like the Romans were like, well, the Lord God loves all people, so we better kill Jesus. Right? That's what the Romans were thinking. The Jews weren't thinking, ah, we got to get Jesus up on the cross. We hate it. He's one of ours, but how else is the world going to get saved? Like, that's not, what, that's not what the Jewish leaders were thinking. Jesus did things and said things that got him killed. Right? He was executed by the state. He was put to death, capital punishment, by the government because he was accused of doing things that they would kill somebody for, that they would put them to death for. It's easy to marginalize the other. It's hard to embrace the other, especially if the other has been our enemy or has been our um, abuser. Now, let me be careful. I'm not suggesting that uh, you put yourself at kind of risk in, in uh, kind of dangerous psychological or emotional or physical situations. But, but I am saying that when God calls us to love each other, when God calls us to love God, God's definition of that is deep and wide. It is broad and inclusive. Um, this is good news, though. And let's, let's move on to verse 4. This is still part of the lectionary. In verse 4, it says, They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display His glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined entities, the devastations of many generations. So what's going on? Well, Isaiah 61 is written in a time after the exile. So the temple's been destroyed, Jerusalem's been destroyed, but now they have this hope, this expectation that a deliverer is going to come, that someone anointed by God would come and kind of make things right. And this is how, this is how the first three verses open. This speaker, who's unidentified, and this in Isaiah anyway, Jesus identifies it with himself. But in Isaiah, the speaker is unidentified, and it's like the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to, to do these things for these oppressed people, to, to, to provide liberation and to set things free and to bind up the brokenhearted. But then in this verse, we three times we get that they. They will be called oaks of righteousness. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall repair the ruined city. So they're, they're putting Jerusalem back together, but the question is, who's they? Right? Is this just the indefinite plural that we like to speak about sometimes? You know, they say. I don't think so. And what's interesting is it is they, not me. It's not like the Messiah figure says, look at me, I'm going to make all these things right for you. The Messiah figure has said, I've been anointed by God to bind up the brokenhearted, to set free the captives, to set free the prisoners. Then he says, they will be doing all this. The they of verse 4 are the oppressed, the brokenhearted, the captives and the prisoners of verses 1 through 3. Look, I get that the holiday season is hard. It's not always festive. It depends on what you've been through. If, if, you're, if you've lost your job 
or you've, you've lost a family member, if your life has become unraveled, the holiday season is not the best time of the year. It can often be the worst time of the year. Look, these people knew what, a, in the time of that Isaiah's, the, the passage of Isaiah is referring to, that they knew it was tough. They knew it was hard. They were the oppressed. <laughs> they were the captive. It's an interesting thing there, right? There's a reference to the captive and a reference to the prisoner. So that's a, that's a little confusing for us. Is that just being redundant? It's not. The prisoner is exactly what you might think about in terms of a prisoner. Someone who had done something wrong and found themselves in jail, and now they're getting out. Right? Maybe you are in that situation. I don't know. The captive is actually an economic term. It's uh, people who are captive to their indebtedness. Like, they, they are bound by their debt. Like, they would like to do more good, but they just can't. Their, their debt is so overwhelming that they don't have any possibility of getting out of it themselves, more or less helping somebody else with anything. But this promise is that they will be set free from that bondage of debt. They will be let loose from the actual prisons. Their broken hearts will be bound up, and then they'll get to participate in the and the bounty of what it means for the king to come. That's good news. In fact, that's great news. In Leviticus 25, it's referred to as the time of jubilee. This time when, when uh, things get kind of uh, set free and let loose and, and land that had been leased goes back to the original owners and, and debts that had been, been bearing down on them get, get forgiven. I don't know how often they practice it, <laughs> but it is a beautiful idea. And that's what we're talking about here. Last week, we talked about part of what it means to celebrate simply Christmas is to spend less but give more. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and kind of listen to the podcast. And not just listen, but I encourage you to actually practice that. Practice what we said last week at the end of this service, that as a family kind of identify one significant gift that you may have received or bought for your group and instead reallocate those resources to some other need. Maybe a family member, maybe an extended family member, maybe a local need, maybe, maybe a global need. The next person to speak in the passage is God. Verse 8, it says, For I, the Lord, so this is not the Messiah figure and this is not the they who've been set free, but for I, the Lord, it says in verse 8, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I'm going to give the reward finally to those who had been in, in bad shape. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are the people whom the Lord has blessed. Man, wouldn't that be great? So, so maybe things have been going well for you, and if that's the case, I'm really happy. But I'm really wanting to speak for a minute for those of you who've had some hard times, that 2017 was not the best year, or maybe neither was 2016 or 2015. I want to say that the time is coming when God will make things right, when people will look at you and they will say, 
This is, must be what it looks like when God blesses someone. The speaker again, the unidentified messianic figure, jumps back in at verse 10 and says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as the bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as the bride adores herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots and as a garden causes what is sown to, be, uh, to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all of the nations. Look, I know that Things don't always work out in our timing. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King is often quoted as saying that the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I know that <laughs> if you're in a people group that is being marginalized politically or ideologically or socially, you might feel like it ain't bending towards justice much lately. But this is nevertheless our hope. Perhaps the ark is longer than we realize. But our hope is that things are getting better. And statistically they are. Interestingly enough, Stephen Pinker in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, uh, which uh, Bill Gates said is the most influential book he's ever read. Uh, I'm not necessarily suggesting it. It's 800 pages of dense writing. But but it is an acknowledgement that in the history of humanity, we are less violent than we used to be. Even, even with the 20th century and all that went wrong, if you're just kind of looking at how humans treat each other, the grace of God is having a positive effect on us. I know we're bad, but we're not so bad collectively that the grace of God is not doing good things. There is a reward, especially for those who suffer. This passage from Isaiah in the lectionary is paired with a psalm. It's Psalm 126. I'd like to just spend a few minutes there, and we'll wrap up. Um, when the Lord restored, this is uh, Psalm 26. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoiced. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses in the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out in weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying the sheaves. This psalm is, starts off uh, what seems to be an obvious kind of post-exilic time period. This is not a psalm that David wrote. It was written much later. And it's remembering the good times. Those first three verses, uh, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, it starts, uh, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. It's kind of speaking of the past tense. It's remembering the good times. So I, I'd like for us to do that just for a minute. Let's, let's remember the good times. Have any of you ever laughed until you cried? Have you, have you laughed until it hurt? You laughed so much that you actually begged the, for the people to stop. Stop, I can't take it. I'm cramping up here. 
when, when something happened in your life or some things happened in your life, maybe a long season, I don't know, but things are going so good you couldn't imagine that it could get any better? I mean, I hope that we've all had those times, even so short. But those, those are great times. And this psalm remember, starts off, the first six verses, the first three verses, is all about remembering those great times. Remember when, we, when the Lord blessed us. Remember, that was, they said, man, the Lord's blessed them. And we said, yes, the Lord has blessed us. We laughed. We were filled with joy. Let's remember those times. Those are good times. The second half of the verse, though, says, starting in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord. So this is not that, right? This isn't the good times. We've remembered the good times, but right now, we're kind of needing God to do something. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Make the watercourses in the Negev. Uh, may those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed of sorrow, shall come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. Like, I get it. And I want to be sensitive. I know that, as I said earlier, that the holidays can be very difficult times depending on your experience in your life. But what this psalm calls you to do is to, to not make that trivial or light, but to remember the good times and let the memory of those good times so overwhelm you that your, that your present situation is really, is really shaped and molded most by the joy and the expectation. The expectation, that's the good word. The expectancy and the expectation that God is going to do something marvelous. That God has done something marvelous. Advent anticipates the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus is the most wonderful, beautiful, exciting, joyful, and hopeful thing that could happen to the planet, to, to all of reality. That God become flesh is making things right. It's all, it's all, of, the, all of the hope and expectancy that comes with the birth of any child. Like, wow, won't this be great? Who's to say what this, this little one will become? There's so much hope wrapped up in the birth of a child. But there's especially so much hope wrapped up in the birth of this child. That God will make things right. Mary says something very similar. It's recorded in Luke chapter 1. Uh, we call it the Magnificant. And Mary, Mary's been told that she's going to have a baby. And she's like, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> right? Because... Certain things have to happen for that to happen, and that hadn't happened, so it must not be me. And she's told, no, no, it's you. And this is how it's going to happen. And this is what it's going to mean. And she, she sings this kind of beautiful song, uh, Luke chapter 1. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, 
and, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has sown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Mary sings of the same reversal of fortune that Isaiah prophesies about. That we have good news for the poor. That there's healing for the oppressed. That there's liberty for the captives. This is what we welcome you to when on behalf of Jesus we welcome you to the table on a Sunday morning worship service. Jesus' table is like that family tree that A.J. Jacob speaks about. We all, we all come from the same family. We might think that we're different and other, but if we back up enough generations, we realize that this is just a family reunion. I grew up in a tradition where we called each other uh, brother and sister. know, Brother Rudy, Sister Opal. Yeah. In fact, I've told this before, but I, I knew my mom and dad had brothers that I called uncle, right? So Uncle Randall and Uncle Don on my dad's side and Uncle Garland and Uncle Harold on my mom's side. And then we went to this other place, on the, you know, seen very regularly, right? And we met this guy they called Brother Stanfield. His name was Dole Stanfield. He pastored the little church there in Alexandria, Virginia. And so I called him, like as a toddler, Uncle Stanfield. I mean, I knew how family relationships worked. <laughs> if this person's being called brother by my mom and dad, then that means he's my uncle. They loved it and encouraged it, and I called him Uncle Stanfield. Uh, I still refer to him as such, and I called him that until he died. But... If, if the scientists are right about our DNA, and I suspect they are, and if the scripture is right about the family of God, and I suspect it is, then, then you're all my cousins or brothers and sisters. As one of my cousins once wrote in a song, We Shall Be Free, Garth Brooks is his name. <laughs> Call him Cousin Garth. Right? When we all realize there's just one race and that's humankind. Cousin Garth wrote that. There's another one, a cousin of mine, uh, Cousin John and Paul. That is uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Cousin John and Paul wrote a beautiful song reflecting on the Magnificat from Luke 1. Reflecting on Mary's experience to, um, to have the presence of God so real in her life, right? That the very incarnation can take shape in her and that she can just profess with honesty and truthfulness, let it be.